in the great American awakening called the Second Great Awakening. There was a flamboyant young man named Charles Finney who appeared like a meteor on the American frontier. He had been trained as a lawyer and had no formal theological education. In 1821, he experienced what he called a soul-shaking conversion and set out to be a converter of souls, a preacher, that very same week. Those who heard him described his speech as forceful, direct, and calculated to manipulate. After all, he had been a lawyer by trade. Then he held services well into the night, where the campfire sent eerie shadows creeping into the woods, arousing the terrors of hell and anxious souls. Finney's influence on the ethos of American evangelicalism has been enormous. Finney actually questioned and eventually rejected the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine that all human beings were born in sin because of Adam's fall in the garden. This denial, often called Pelagianism, was condemned in the 5th century by Augustine. Finney taught the possibility of the sinner's entire sanctification during this lifetime. Since sin was always a voluntary act rather than a result of entire depravity, it was theoretically possible to choose through radical obedience to simply sin no more. Finney viewed conversion to Christ as a matter of moral persuasion. The preacher's job was to rationally persuade the sinner to just abandon his sin and embrace Christ. For Finney, success was always measured in numbers. And to achieve numbers, Finney, a lawyer, believed it was possible to simply persuade people to become believers. And Finney saw little or no role for the Holy Spirit in conversion. He would later argue in his book, Lectures on Revival, that a revival was not a miracle. I quote, a revival is not a miracle as something above the powers of nature. There is nothing in religion beyond the ordinary powers of nature. It consists entirely in the right exercise of the powers of nature. It is just that and nothing else. A revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely, it is a purely philosophical result of the right use of the right means. Errol Hulse writes of Finney, he believed in man's natural ability to repent and believe. Thus, there was a tremendous emphasis on the need to press for immediate decisions. If it is true, as Finney believed it was, that conversion merely depends on our powers to persuade the sinner then where does the mighty power of God to regenerate souls fit in? Finney, and I'm continuing the quote, was a dogmatic proponent of the notion that methods produce commensurate results. The sovereignty of God and salvation exercised no power or influence in his theology, 
which contrasts completely with that of Jonathan Edwards, who is rightly regarded as the church's foremost theologian of revival. Well, as Finney's popularity grew, so too did opposition from his contemporaries, men like Asahel Nettleton and Lyman Beecher. Beecher was the father of the famous author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And Lyman Beecher wrote to Finney, I know your plan and you know I do. You mean to come into Connecticut and carry a streak of fire to Boston. But if you attempt it as the Lord liveth, I'll meet you at the state line and call out the artillerymen and fight every inch of the way to Boston and I'll fight you there. Nettleton and Beecher were opposed to what have become known as Finney's, quote, new measures in revivalism. And these included the use of persuasive rhetoric, direct, forceful, clever language designed to secure an immediate conversion, or calling out and praying for sinners by name from the pulpit. Oh, I see you out there. Pray for you publicly. Or protracted services at unusual times, generally well into the night, where the terrors of darkness and the licking flames of the campfires would just arouse in people fears of hell. But most famously was the adaptation of the anxious bench, as it was then called. The anxious bench was a bench that was placed in front of the congregation just below the, the, the pulpit or the preaching platform. And using his powerful, persuasive appeal, Finney would call from the audience the almost converted. And he would encourage them to come through the crowd and to kneel down or sit on the bench where he could really begin to work them over. And this new measure, or the anxious bench, gave birth to the invitation system. And it became so enormously influential over the next 150 years in American evangelicalism that it has been called by many, quote, an evangelical sacrament. The great historian of American Christianity, Sidney Alstrom, described Finney as, quote, an enormously successful practitioner, almost the inventor of the modern high-pressure revivalism which, as it spread, would have important consequences for the religious ethos of the nation as a whole. Now, I want to be very careful at this point that I don't disparage conversions of those who've come to Christ through the invitation system. Many, many, many people have come to Christ through that system. In fact, I have family members and colleagues that have come to Christ through an invitation, for which I am very, very grateful. But as this so-called evangelical sacrament grew, it morphed in its usage. Errol Hulse writes, Many often add so many things to the invitation that one cannot be certain what he is being asked to do. This was especially true in the invitations of Billy Sunday, who often exhorted people to come on down and take my hand against booze for Jesus Christ or for your flag. What are we responding to? I've actually long thought that a dissertation comparing Billy Sunday and Billy Graham would be very beneficial. Graham always seemed to make it clear that the sinner should respond to the gospel, nothing more. With Sunday and others, you never could quite tell why you were called to hit the sawdust trail. In fact, Sunday would allow trail hitters to be turned over to both Catholics and Unitarians. 
for soul counsel. Well, not everyone was taken in by these new measures. Across the Atlantic, when C.H. Spurgeon became aware of the practice of public invitations back in America, which crept into England, he responded with a book called The Soul Winner. Spurgeon writes, All hurry to get numbers into the church is most mischievous, both to the church and to the supposed converts. Some of the most glaring sinners known to me were once members of a church and were led to make a profession by undue pressure, well-meant but ill-judged. Spurgeon questioned reports of large numbers being converted in these campaigns. He writes, What mean these dispatches from the battlefield? Last night, 14 souls were under conviction. 15 were justified and 8 received full sanctification. I am weary of this public bragging, this counting of unhatched chickens, this exhibition of doubtful spoils. Lay aside such numberings of the people, such idle pretense of certifying in half a minute that which will need the testing of a lifetime. And Spurgeon notes, there are so many stony ground hearers who receive the word with joy that I have determined to suspend my judgment until I know the tree by its fruits. That makes me so cautious now, which I was not 30 years ago, of dubbing converts too soon. I love now to wait a little and see if people bring forth fruit, for there are so many blossoms which March winds blow away that I cannot believe they are converts till I see fruit brought back. Well, in the century before Finney, Jonathan Edwards also adopted a much more sober approach to the spirit of the awakening. Jonathan Edwards was the great theologian of the first Great Awakening, which began in 1734 at his church in Northampton, Massachusetts. Edwards later wrote in defense of the awakening against those who actually dismissed it as religious enthusiasm run amok. He wrote, a faithful work, he wrote a work called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God and the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton. He describes what happened there. And Edwards uses the term surprising to indicate that the awakening was truly a work of the Holy Spirit and not the result of any clever manipulation or contrivance on his part. It wasn't something he could schedule. This had to be the work of the Holy Spirit. Edwards never used anything that we would identify as a public invitation. Again, I know people that have come to Christ for invitations, no problem. But Edwards didn't use it. In his most famous work, Religious Affections, Edwards tells how he actually dealt with people that he counseled for salvation. And he wanted to know whether their affections had actually changed. Edwards did not consider the formula of words a person prayed to be so important as the person's affections changing. I mean, I can say these words because I responded emotionally to an invitation, but have I actually changed? He writes, Do an individual's affections promote, quote, a spirit of love and mercy as appeared in Christ? Have they softened the heart? Do they lead to Christian fruit? 
in dealing with his own son, Edward counseled him never to rest until he had good evidence that he was converted and had become a new creature. Now, all of this raises, I think, some very important questions about the nature of true conversion. How is a person born again? And for our purposes today, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the conversion of the sinner? In John 16, Jesus' departure from the upper room is imminent. He is about to head to dark Gethsemane. But let's turn back for just a moment to John 14. John 14. In John 14, Jesus is in the upper room. Before he leaves, he promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is described as the Helper. And he will come, Jesus tells us, to facilitate the disciples' mission to preach Christ's kingdom to the ends of the earth. The day following Jesus' upper room discourse, he will be crucified by a mocking world. The Jewish leadership will claim, we have no king but Caesar. And Jesus will go the way of other insurrectionists, traitors, and revolutionaries who dared to question the military might of Rome. Nevertheless, Jesus approaches his cross with a sense of divine approval. All through John's Gospel, Jesus viewed himself as operating in lockstep with the Father. And Jesus had already told the Jews, back in John 5 and verse 10, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father initiates and the Father approves all that Jesus says and does. And that would certainly include his journey to the cross. Then in John 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus, Jesus insisted that the Father hears all of his prayers. That is to say that the Father actually agrees with everything that Jesus prays. Imagine that. Everything that Jesus prays, the Father agrees with him. Jesus never prays amiss. The Father's entirely sympathetic with Jesus' mission. And then earlier that very evening in John 14, Jesus told Philip and Thomas that every word that he spoke to them was also in complete agreement with the Father. In fact, he went on to say, to see me and to hear me is to see and hear the Father. To observe the works of Jesus is to observe the works of the Father. There isn't a shadow of difference between them. But what's interesting about this is Jesus' relationship with the Father is not the only one that he emphasizes. Jesus explained to his disciples there is another member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, the Helper who is coming And he, too, is in complete accord with every detail of Jesus' mission. In John 14 and verse 17, Jesus said, Of this helper, into the verse, he will dwell with you 
and will be in you. In John 14 and verse 26, Jesus also said, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now think about it. How could it be possible for those disciples to remember everything that Jesus taught them? What's more, how were they to interpret the events that were coming on in rapid succession, namely His death, burial, and resurrection? What does all that mean? The Holy Spirit is going to come and He will clarify it all. The Holy Spirit will become their teacher after His departure. And that Holy Spirit will come as a witness to Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not have His own independent mission, His own independent agenda. He doesn't have some sort of different gospel than Jesus and the Father. It's the same. So just as the Father testifies to Jesus, so the Holy Spirit will do exactly the same. He will testify to Jesus. So look now at John 15, verse 26. Here Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, here's what he's going to do. He will bear witness about me. Jesus will be crucified by a mocking world. Nevertheless, both the Father and the Spirit will witness to Jesus' true identity and his mission. But what's curious about this is that's not where the responsibility to bear witness for Jesus ends. It doesn't end with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus proceeds to say to the disciples in verse 27, look at this, this is incredible, and you also. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So here's Jesus just hours away from his crucifixion. And Jesus calls his disciples now to be his true witnesses. In addition to the Father and the Spirit. That's amazing, isn't it? We are called alongside the Father and the Spirit to be true witnesses to Jesus Christ. Now, we know the aftermath of the crucifixion. Jesus rises triumphantly from the grave, and He ascends to the Father's right hand in triumph. But actually, that's not how the world sees it. To embrace a crucifixion victim is a deranged absurdity. Here's how the world sees it. Minucius Felix was an early apologist for Christianity. And he says that his Roman opponents referred to the cross as, quote, a sick delusion, a senseless and crazy superstition, an old womanly superstition. Justin Martyr uses the term madness to describe the pagans' attitude toward the cross. That's all madness, those Christians believe. Plenty, the famous Roman governor, contemptuously describes Christianity as, quote, a perverse an extravagant superstition. And he describes you as wretches whose ceremonies center on a man put to death for his crimes. And the Roman order Cicero, 
highly regarded as one of the greatest orators in all of human history, said the very word cross should be far removed from the person of the Roman citizen. From his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, the very mention of the cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen. So, given those attitudes toward the cross, how will the disciples ever convince the world to embrace a crucified Savior? I mean, this seems impossible. And the answer is, it actually is impossible. They won't be able to do it. The Holy Spirit will have to come and do the work. You'll have to work in coordination with the Holy Spirit. Disciples are never called to witness independently of the Holy Spirit and the Father Himself. The Father and the Spirit are already testifying to Jesus. Isn't that encouraging when you go to witness to somebody? You've got to realize, you've already got two members of the Godhead working on Him. All right? Or they're working on Him through you. The Father and the Spirit testify to Jesus. So our job is to preach the gospel and let the Holy Spirit do the work of convicting. The Holy Spirit does not have an independent agenda, nor do we. Our agenda is to carry on the work of the Father and the Spirit and testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. And when people respond, it really is the Holy Spirit that is doing the convicting. So let all of that now pressurize the reading of John 16, 8 through 11. This is as far as we made it last week. John 16, 8 through 11. And we, did, we, got, we didn't get too far last week. We more or less situated these verses in their context. But what I want to do is explore them in a little bit more depth today. John 16, verse 8. So here's what Jesus says. And when he... Who is that? Well, that's the helper of verse 7, the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict, who? The world. About what? Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the Spirit's mission. And then Jesus clarifies in verses 9 through 11 concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So verse 8 is a summary statement. And then verses 9 through 11 develop the statement. And in verse 8, we are told of three particular areas where the Holy Spirit brings conviction. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. All right, and then verse 9 develops sin. Verse 10 develops a statement concerning righteousness. And verse 11 develops a statement concerning judgment. And that's how the passage breaks down. Now, the term convict in verse 8 occurs some 18 times in the New Testament. And it means to show someone his or her sin with a summons to repentance. It can mean to expose. Jesus came to expose or to shed light on people's sins. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He exposes our sinfulness. So in verse 9, the Spirit will convict the world of sin. But notice one great sin in particular, the sin of disbelief. 
There are many, many, many sins a person can commit, and Paul, commit, Paul categorizes all kinds of sins in places like Romans chapter 1. But ultimately, as I said last week, there is one sin. There is one sin that guarantees one will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is the sin of disbelief. You must believe in Jesus. Back in John 8, Jesus was dealing with the Jews at the Feast of the Tabernacles. And they were looking very assiduously to find fault with him. And Jesus knew, of course, that it was nothing but crass bias against him that fueled their quest to pin some sin on him. And so he asked, which one of you convicts me of sin? And he knew that they had nothing on him and they could not secure a legitimate conviction. Why? Because he never sinned. The problem was not Jesus. The problem was the Jews and their stubborn disbelief. They had yet to be convicted of their own unbelief. And that sin of unbelief just manifested itself by them instead accusing Jesus of being the sinner. When you are confronted with the truth, here's what happens. You choose either to embrace it or to embrace some form of a lie. We all do it. There is no other alternative. When you're confronted with the perfect life of Jesus Christ, you either embrace Him, or you embrace the lie of your own goodness. I don't need Him. So what Jesus highlighted back in John 8 was that when it really came down to it, the world was guilty of one great sin. There is one sin that will damn the soul, and that is the sin of unbelief. You must believe on Jesus Christ. So again, sin manifests itself in all kinds of rebellion. That is true. And we bring all kinds of sin right into this room. It's true. But the New Testament is clear. God redeems people from all sorts of debauchery and idolatry and illicit sexuality and carnality and false religion. He redeems us from all of that. But if you persist in the sin of unbelief, friend, there is no hope. You must believe. But how hard is it to get people to actually believe in Jesus Christ? Well, here's the answer. You need the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who ultimately does the convicting of some person's unbelief. If Jesus, think of it, if Jesus himself didn't convince the Jews of their unbelief, what makes you think you're going to succeed? Why would Charles Finney assume he was going to persuade anyone at all when the very people to whom Jesus preached crucified him? Do you really think that a high-pressure invitation is going to succeed where Jesus himself did not succeed in convincing his persecutors to embrace him? In John 6, you recall that Jesus let the crowd just dwindle away. They'd only come because their bellies were full of loaves and fish. They wanted another miracle. Give us the sign. Give us the power. Persuade us. And Jesus refused. 
They did not want His teaching. And Jesus made no effort to recover the crowd through manipulative tactics or a high-pressure invitation or an anxious bench. If they don't want His teaching, He let them wander away. The Holy Spirit has to do the work. He is the one who will convince the world of the sin of unbelief. That's not up to you. You just preach the gospel and let the Spirit do the work. Now, that brings us to verse 10. In verse 10, the Spirit will convict concerning righteousness. And that seems straightforward enough until you read the second half of the verse. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Well, how does the latter statement connect with the first part? Well, as I put it to you last week, Jesus' resurrection and His ascension to the Father's right hand were a vindication of Jesus. They were a vindication of His righteousness. Jesus' return to the Father was a statement about God's divine approval of Jesus of Nazareth. God raised him from the dead because he deserved to be raised from the dead as a perfectly righteous person. In fact, it would be unrighteous for Jesus to stay dead permanently because he had done no wrong. God's then exalting him right through the clouds to a throne was a vindication. That man was totally, completely righteous. So the Holy Spirit comes along and He convicts people of the truth that Jesus was indeed righteous. And God vindicated Him in the resurrection and the ascension. And the whole world needs to embrace that truth. Jesus was vindicated. When Jesus went right up those clouds, that tells us He was indeed righteous. Do you recall what the centurion said when he saw Jesus die? Truly, this was the Son of God. Well, if we just killed the Son of God, wouldn't it be righteous for Him to be exalted to the Father's right hand? Again, when Jesus was resurrected and ascended, His righteousness which is vindicated, at the same time, the unrighteousness of the Jews became obvious. They thought that through their deeds of righteousness, they would achieve heaven. They thought that it was their righteous duty to kill Jesus as an imposter. But Jesus' resurrection just reversed the whole verdict. You had it all wrong. So the Holy Spirit's role then was to convince the world that the self-righteous persecutors, including all of us, of Jesus were wrong. The resurrection just turns that disbelief on its head. So listen to how Peter puts it in Acts 2. He stands up, he preaches at Pentecost. Listen in real time to what he's doing here. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He couldn't possibly stay dead. Why? He was righteous. He was vindicated. 
And friends, God did not merely raise Jesus. Peter says further, verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are now seeing and hearing. God raised Jesus, God exalted Jesus to His right hand, And now the Spirit has come, just as Jesus promised back here in John 16. So what is his role? His role is to convince the world that Jesus is who he said he is. And he was indeed resurrected, and he was indeed exalted. We were wrong about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has come to convict us of our unrighteousness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the role of the Spirit. And that then leads to verse 11. The Spirit will also convict the world of judgment. But what judgment? In verse 11, the judgment of the ruler of this world. Quite literally, the Spirit comes to convict people that Satan has been judged. And when did the Spirit come? It came at Pentecost. So Satan was judged when? Before Pentecost. He was judged at the cross. And the Spirit comes to convict us of that. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. At the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The Greek text speak of, him, of Jesus stripping away their weapons, their armor. Paul says that they were actually undressed and rendered powerless, shamed by Jesus. It's the same context in which Paul tells us that we are no longer taken captive by him and his philosophy and his deceitful teaching. Likewise, Hebrews 2 and verse 14 tells us through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had power over death. That is the devil. In fact, even before his cross, Christ trampled Satan through 40 days of starvation in the wilderness. Satan tried for 40 days, not just on day 40. He tried for 40 days to convince Jesus to eat bread even while his strength ebbed away and his body began to consume itself. But Jesus endured the assault of the most diabolical temper in the world, and he emerged victorious where Adam, having never known hunger, fell in paradise. And Jesus went on to endure two more temptations, and Jesus crushed Satan. And Jesus went to his cross, and he arose from his tomb to utterly destroy the powers of darkness. But you're saying, well, isn't Satan still alive and active? Yes. Paul told the Roman, the Roman church, rather, in Romans 16 and verse 20, listen to this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, wait a minute. Was Satan already crushed or not yet? Already not yet? You've heard that before from this pulpit? All right. Satan was crushed, but he is still alive and howling mad. He lives on borrowed time. He has been placed on a short lease. As one of my professors used to put it, he was an avid hunter. Satan is like a heart-shot deer. He has suffered a mortal wound, and he tears off of the woods in great wrath. He is still a roaring lion raging over his mortal wound. But in the name of Christ, 
Listen to this. We can resist the devil, and he will flee. When God commands Satan to flee, he has no choice but to run away. He's defeated. And in fact, immediately after telling the Romans that God will soon crush Satan, Paul writes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Satan, flee. Here's God's grace. All the temptation and every trial that we endure can now be endured through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus, as I've pointed out previously, was declared to be the Christ with power at the resurrection. In saying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you, Paul wasn't just giving him a new last name. When he uses that word Christ, Paul is saying the power of the resurrected king is with you. The very one who resurrected and claimed all authority over all nations for all time, that authority is with you in your temptation. So think of it. The identical spirit who came on Jesus at his baptism and drove him right into the wilderness of temptation, that identical spirit, according to Romans 8, has united you with Jesus Christ. And I didn't know Joseph was going to read Romans 8 this morning. I guess I should have known that. All right, Romans 8, he's united us with Christ. When we fail to endure temptation, it is only because we are resisting in our own strength. Our humanity actually has not improved since Adam. It actually, actually hasn't gotten any better. But for the believer, all temptation is now to be endured through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit that came on Him and that now resides in us. And when you endure temptation in Jesus Christ, Romans 16 and verse 20 becomes your assurance the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This temptation is not going to go on indefinitely. God will crush Satan once again. He's already proven he can do that, and he will do it again. Now, I suspect that far too many well-meaning Christians view Satan's defeat as some sort of exclusive future event. And it's because of this, I think we need to come back next week and spend just a little bit more time on this. But it is true that there are Christians who live in this sort of perpetual fear of their surroundings, they don't know what to do when an election doesn't go their way. And I wrote this six months ago. I didn't know there was an election yesterday when I wrote this. All right, uh, They are constantly in fear of the end of the world as we know it. They're Christians like them. But what we have to realize is that Jesus has already crushed Satan at his cross. He has already triumphed over his foe. And Paul commenced his great epistle to the Romans with this insistence. Jesus, friends, was declared, at the resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And Matthew's gospel concluded with Jesus claiming, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So here's my question. First question. Do you believe Jesus was given all authority in heaven and earth at the resurrection? Second question then. Do you believe that Jesus relinquished that authority to Satan? Do you think he's given that authority to Satan? So friends, how on earth 
are you going to convict the world that Satan has already been judged? How will you convict the world that Jesus' ascension was a declaration of his righteousness? And how will you convict the world of its sin of disbelief? The fact is, there are some people who even deny the existence of Jesus, and they certainly deny his resurrection. So how will you convince the world of any of this, of its sin of disbelief, of the righteousness of Jesus, the judgment of Satan? Here's the answer. You're not going to. You're not going to be able to do that. And you may be a great lawyer like Charles Finney, but it was lawyers who convicted Jesus and sent him to a cross. And you may be a great orator like Finney, but it was the great Jewish teachers and orators who convicted Jesus and sent him to a cross. Finney was wrong. He was dead wrong. Now, I have no doubt that people did indeed come to Christ through the preaching of Charles Finney. I have no trouble with that. People come to Christ through the preaching of unbelievers. In fact, Benjamin Keach, the famous Baptist pastor, was converted under his own preaching. He's up there preaching the gospel and realized, I need to believe this. <laughs> he was an unbelieving preacher that led himself to Christ. <laughs> People can come to Christ listening to an atheist read the Bible. Why? Because those words are true, regardless of who speaks them. And the Holy Spirit can take those words, regardless of the person who speaks them, and use them to draw a person to Christ. But a person doesn't come to Christ because of the preacher's oratorical skills or his legal prowess or his convincing rhetoric. Frankly, people come to Christ in spite of the preacher, not because of him. I am totally convinced of that. People come to Christ in spite of the preacher, not because of him. In fact, Paul told the Corinthians, our preaching is foolish. That's what he said. It's just foolish. Read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. Paul said this, and with this I close. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. So what did Paul emphasize? Here's what Paul said. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. As we go to prayer, can we just thank God this morning? for the coming and the abiding of the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned last week, the Holy Spirit's conviction isn't just a one-time conviction that we endure when we come under His conviction and put our faith in Christ, but it's something that we ought to invite at all times. So can we just take a few moments here and ask the Holy Spirit to go right on convicting us of our sin, and to go right on convicting us of the righteousness of Jesus, and they go right on convicting us that Satan has been judged. Can we take a few minutes and just pray to that end?
Father, we thank You for the work of Your Spirit. We thank You that He has, in fact, come, and that He is even now convicting and working, pointing us to our sin, pointing us to Christ, and pointing us to the judgment of Satan. And I pray, Lord, that even today, the reality of the Holy Spirit's conviction might draw someone decisively to Christ this morning. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. When C.H. Spurgeon designed the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he designed it in such a way that there was no anxious bench in the front. And what Spurgeon would do is he would tell anyone sitting out in the congregation that if they had really come under the conviction of the Spirit, that he wanted to see them on Tuesday afternoon. Tuesday afternoon. Why? Well, he figured we'll give it 48 hours and we'll see if it's sincere or not. All right? Now, you are more than welcome to come here on Tuesday afternoon. But let me just uh, tell any of you that may really be under the conviction of the Spirit today and you've seen Christ in a whole new way, you don't have to wait till Tuesday afternoon. We'd be very, very happy to talk with you today, even before we go home today. All right? So would you say something to either John or Joseph, one of our elders, or myself, and we'd be happy to talk with you today. Or give us a phone call this week, and we can meet on Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday morning or any time convenient to you. And if you really sense the Holy Spirit is drawing you to Christ and exalting Christ in your heart and mind, then allow Him to do that. And allow us, if you would, to help you with that, if you'd like, or simply turn to the Word and read the Word and ask the Spirit to make it clear to you. All right, Brother John, please come. <clears throat> 